0: If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to Psalm 68. We're going to be reading from there in just a few minutes. But I would like to kind of get us all on the same page this morning, get us all um, thinking on the same lines, uh, if you will. I want to ask a question. Um, I want you to think about this for just a few minutes, and maybe you'll think about this throughout the message, and it'll be uh, either challenged or clarified and maybe even strengthened as we talk today. But I want to ask, um, what are your earliest memory memories of God? What is your earliest memory of God? What is your earliest understanding of God? So if you want to think back to maybe as a child, as you were brought up in a household where uh, God was mentioned and taught and prayed to uh, for a long time, or maybe you came to faith or came to, uh, to to God later in life, what is your earliest memory of God? And what are your earliest thoughts or understandings about God? And, and maybe you can remember, uh, maybe you can't, Maybe you wish you couldn't remember. Um, Perhaps your introduction to God or an introduction to faith was a bad one. Where Scripture wasn't properly handled and your perception of God was tainted because of it. Maybe that's your experience. Um, But you know, even in a room full of Christians, the answer... Um, of our first impressions of God are likely to be very different, Um, even amongst our crowd today, uh, based on your denomination, based on your family, based on your nationality, your ethnicity. Uh, And for this reason, when we branch out from this place to the whole world um, and and you begin to ask people, hey, what's your earliest memory or your understanding of God? There are many, many different views of God and many different takes on God. And, and, And there are libraries of books written by all sorts of people who have pushed their ideas to the forefront giving their informed and experienced take on who God is, and it's always apart from people, separate from people, um, and and who God is and who he should be to you and to me. And and some of them have been written uh, to help clarify what we already believe. Some are written to change or challenge or put an end to certain views that we may hold. You can find a convincing uh, defense suggesting that God exists at any different or any possible extreme that there is. And, and, And perhaps your beliefs about God... Your perception about God are extensions of your earliest memories. Perhaps your idea of God hasn't changed that much since you were introduced to him or first exposed to him. And maybe your foundational idea of God um, is where you remain today. Or or perhaps you've took a 180-degree turn in a journey in your faith since then. So my goal today, or really on any given Sunday, my goal today isn't to convince you that my idea is right or more right than yours or to convince you that your idea is wrong or worse than mine. My goal and my calling, really my conviction always, my responsibility is to proclaim that above all the opinions and the ideas and even beliefs about God, is a reality about God. And you may say, can we be conclusive? Can we arrive at a place where we all can at least agree on one thing about God? I believe there's one thing that we can indeed come to. There is one God We believe this, there is one God. His Spirit fills our universe. His glory rests high in the heavens above. So I think that's a general idea of who God is. He is above us. He is beyond us. His Spirit moves in the universe. His glory is greater and higher than anything of the earth. But we also believe that God is involved in creation with a very specific purpose but many additional agendas. He's near every shooting star He's near every supernova that begins or ends. He's in the skies. He's in the seas. He's in every sunrise and sunset. He's in the wind that blows as the skies roll. And he's in the stillness of a clear day. He's present when creation makes him proud. He's present when creation suggests he should hide his face. He's passionate about the most microscopic of creatures. And he's patient with the most visible ones. But. Our God is not just known in these abstracts. Our God has been revealed to us, revealed to us in a clear, concise, cohesive, written collection. Now, we call this collection the Bible, and we often refer to it as a book, but it's better than that. It's 66 Books. Some of them are shorter than the average book you find on a bookshelf today. They're documents, letters, treaties, messages that were written, stories that were told. They were written across a thousand plus years, documenting 5,000 plus years of human history and an infinite number of years of divine testimony. No, we aren't told about God's activity before he created the earth. Maybe that's the point. But we are told that he simply has ruled in a world far beyond ours forever. We're told that God has always been the same. He's perfect. He was perfect. He is perfect. He always will be perfect. Of course, you'd expect that from God, right? Yet the earth was created and the Bible was written with a very specific message in mind, a very specific story to tell. Because God, in His perfection and in His fullness, was not satisfied with a universe that revolved around Him. This is the only explanation for why the Bible was ever written, why history ever happened, because God, who was perfect before He ever said, let there be, right? We can agree on that. He was perfect and complete before He ever created, right? Before He ever made this earth. He was perfect and full, but something within His heart, maybe he's suggesting His very nature, was incomplete. Something in his heart was not satisfied with a universe that revolved around him. And that makes no sense to me because if I was God and I had the universe revolving around me, I, and this might make you think less of me, but come on, I think you all can agree with me as people. If I had a universe revolving around me, I don't know if I'd change that. Would you? But God, as perfect and full as he was, he was not satisfied with that. Something moved within him to create a brand new realm with brand new material using a brand new substance. He imagined and set in motion a world that would be based on the heavens, but it would look and taste and smell and feel much different. The center, not in location, but in focus, would be a planet called Earth. And on the planet would be a species called people or humans, or in Hebrew, called Adam. Adam. They would be made in His image. You ask the question in books that have been written, why did God make us? Because He wanted to. It's not rocket science. I'm not asking a very deep theological question. Why did God make us? Nobody made Him. He wanted to. He was compelled to. And this is maybe the best way I could put it. We exist. You exist. Because of the overflow by the overflow, out of the overflow of God's goodness. Notice in Genesis 1, when God created, what does He say at the end of every day? God saw what He made and it was good because where did it come from? Him. You exist. And maybe this helps, clear, maybe this is a breakthrough for you, and I'm sure for somebody watching, this is good news. Maybe this can change the way you see the world, the way you see yourself in the mirror. You exist because of the overflow of a good God. We are not an accident set in motion by unstable or chaotic cells or organisms. We are not an experiment or a project meant to test the measure, test the limit or measure the potential of matter. We are creatures made by God, male or female, on purpose, with purpose. That's the reason why we have the Bible. Yes, there's a lot about sin and judgment that's in there. It may distract us sometimes, but this is our origin. And and for whatever reason, and again, no time to go into it today, God's overflow of goodness that led to our creation also led to a rise of evil and darkness in the universe. That force of rebellion and evil set its sights on us, and its aim was right on target, and it took us down into sin and shame. But that doesn't change our origin story. And best of all, it does not change God's heart. You see, I don't know what your first impressions of or beliefs about God are or were, but I don't know what your current convictions about God are. But I hope today I can make it clear to you who God is. Because the Bible was written and has made its way into your hands so that we might know the truth about God. Who He is and who we are to Him. Who He is and who you are to Him. Because perhaps just as important as knowing who God is, is knowing who we are to Him. The Bible reveals that not just in forms of lectures or laws, but through a story. A story that chronicles God creating people, people rebelling against Him, breaking away from Him. And then God decided to do the unthinkable. He entered into the story, stepping from spirit to flesh, heaven to earth, gold to dirt, throne to cross. Now that's getting a bit ahead of our story. God tells this story. He inspired this story. He enters the story so that you would know who he is. So for just a minute, if you will, I may not convince you, but I hope I can at least intrigue you for just a minute, would you open a blank document in your mind? Would you take out a blank sheet of paper, if you will, clear your mind of all that you know or think you know about God, and let's start over. Now, this may just confirm what you already know, but my hopes are that as we all start together with a blank slate, with open minds and hearts, we could be united together under God as a church, and we might take this fresh perspective that can take precedent over all the questions, the confusions, and the gaps we have in our faith. And again, this might not smooth over every hill, but it can help to inform and conform our faith around what matters most. From Genesis to Revelation, if there is one intended story, God wants you to know that He is your Father and you are His child. Now, it may be kind of a a stretch to say the Bible has one intended message. There's a lot of words in there, right? Why don't we just have a three by five, right? God's one message that he wants us to get from the entire front to back is that God is your father and he wants you to know that you are his child. He's not ashamed of you. He is not against you. Romans 8 verse 31. He is for you. He is passionate about you. His heart burns for you in love. John three sixteen. He rejoices over you and delights in you. Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Those verses reveal to us that God is for. He is in love and he rejoices over you. When we understand the Bible, all 66 books, all 35 authors, both Old and New Testaments, we come to this conclusion. God is our Father, we are His children. Sin separated us from God, but God has come near to redeem and reclaim us. Yes, there is a sin factor, and yes, there is a separation, and there is a division between God and people, but God did something about it. Usually I start with a single text and unpack a truth, but I felt today being Father's Day, it was appropriate to really just unite, this under, unite us under the whole Bible. But the passage that really brought me to this conversation this morning is from Psalm 68, verses 4 through 6. These are some verses I've committed to memory in recent years, and they've really helped change the way I preach, change my passion and my mission and ministry to make sure that people know this because so many people don't. And so few churches make this the main thing. Psalm 68, verse 4 says Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah, and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation or his big house? God sets the solitary into families, he brings out those who are bound in prosperity into prosperity but the rebellious dwell in a dry and parched land verse 4 says that we should praise God it's a command we should praise God we don't need a reason many preach and stress that giving or looking for a reason is wrong we should just praise God because he is supreme and superior and that's all good and dandy but verse 5 gives us a reason why we can why we should praise God and gives us a reason to want to praise God We don't need a reason, but God offers it to us. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of the widows and of the weak. The reason wasn't provided because somebody asked. It was provided because God wants to give it and He wants us to hear this. He doesn't want to separate the two. That's why the Bible was written... It's more than just a declaration of God's persona. It's a demonstration of God's passion. Yes, the Bible tells us God is holy, but it shows us how God loves. And yes, God is holy and higher and supreme and He is mighty and He is wonderful. He's better and bigger than us. But the Bible is more than just a definition. It's a demonstration of God's passion. And it begins with a show that He wanted to do something. He wanted to create something. And that... Was us. And the rest of the story is about his passion to preserve and save and protect us. We aren't owed an answer or a reason, but God offers it. And you know why he offers it? You know why he gives it? Because he is love. He is turned towards and focused toward his creation always, especially since we are under attack by his enemies, death and sin. Death against an opposite of God because God is eternal and there is no death in Him at all. Sin against an opposite because God is good and sin is evil. Death and sin are weapons in each hand of the enemy used to end us and do harm to us in the world that God has made. Even in a world that is shadowed by death and sin, dominated by death and sin, we don't give in or bow to its forces, its falsehoods, or its counterfeits. And if we do, we end up disappointed we worship God proclaiming that he is greater and worthy no matter what we face we acknowledge our bondage under an inclination towards sin but we praise him as our true king and our only hope and God wants you to know that you don't we don't have to stand back and go through the motions of religion and long for more he is coming in our direction he is moving in our direction to give us more Because while death and sin have left us as spiritual orphans, God wants to be our Father. He wants to be more than just a ruler over us. He wants to be a Father who is with us. He's the Daddy we come to as wandering children. He's the Daddy we run home to as disappointed adults who tried and failed to make it on our own or with somebody else that didn't live up to our Dad standard. He's the daddy who can always, we can always find in the same place, and you know the place. Your dad always had that one place in your childhood home, didn't he? And if you didn't grow up with a dad, you know exactly where you wish he would have been, don't you? Where you wish you could have found him. Now, I'm not a dad, but I am a husband and a son. I can remember being a kid, pushing my dad to do more than he felt up to because life had wearied him. I know all too well about wanting to do more for Lindsay, but my flesh sometimes fails me. I know that sometimes my nephews and nieces are full of energy and I can be lacking and otherwise engaged physically or mentally. But unlike men like me, God never sleeps nor slumbers. He's never wearied nor preoccupied. God is the perfect version of what men like me fail to be. He's a father to every person. He's a defender of every person. When we have nothing or no one, He is our home. He is our hiding place. We all remember being kids saying to our dads or someone in their place, Daddy, watch me. Or saying, look, Dad, wanting someone to be proud of us. Or crying out, help dad, wanting someone to help us. And if you didn't have someone to say that to, you thought it a lot, didn't you? Even the best of earthly dads get distracted or sometimes have more important, pressing things. But we never have to beg for God's attention. Our Heavenly Father is always looking over us. Growing up, I used to hear the phrase, God is watching, and it was always in a negative way like he's just looking for something to get, for us to get wrong and to get mad at us about. But that's not the message of the Bible. That God is indeed watching, he is indeed looking, but not with judgment or for flaws, but with love and acceptance. And he longs for us to receive him and us to thrive in him. And I want to say this, if this is jarring for you, if this doesn't sit right with you because of your traditional way of understanding God, Can I ask you something? You can walk out and cross your arms and you can think that's not the God I was taught about. But could it be that of all that religion has gotten wrong over the years, this may be the reason? Because we've so often gotten God wrong? And we can talk about different beliefs, but there's really no need to. We all have, we have all that we need. We have God's revelation. And could it be That our sinful nature isn't just interested in keeping us in sin, but also in keeping us away from and blind to God and who he really is? Because wouldn't, of course, the latter cure the former? Of course, absolutely. The enemy loves that there are so many opinions and perceptions about God because he knows there is but one. He knows so clearly that Jesus came and displayed and died for that one reason. And He has planted all these seeds and these theories, and He's given us these good reasons to believe what we believe. And there's this temptation in theology, and it sounds spiritual. There's this temptation in religion to always separate God from people. And when you give dissertations or definitions of God, oh, we can't make God so personal or so family-oriented. It undermines or underscores His infinite worth. Really? Because I think what undermines his nature is upholding what he came to undo. He came to remove separation between himself and people. He wants to be associated with people. He became a person because he loves us and wants us to be connected with him. He wants us to define him on this plane. So people like me push their glasses up and remind everyone that God doesn't need us, and of course he doesn't, but that's a moot point as seen in the reality that he wants us and he loves us. And it breaks his heart when his children try to do life without him because that only leads to death and judgment. And that's why today God wants us to come back to this place of ground zero and begin again at this place, at his place, at his house, in his family. He wants to center our faith around this one thing God is a father to the fatherless. He is not just to literal orphans, but to all of us who have been orphaned by sin, separated from God because of sin. We are all imprisoned by our sin, our flesh, our lesser desires, and less becoming attributes. But listen. If you're someone who doesn't have a relationship with God, it's not your fault. It's sin's fault. It's the world that we were born into's fault. And that's not on us. But yet we bear the consequences of that separation, don't we? We suffer under the separation, don't we? And we could indeed die under that separation. But it's not your fault if you don't have a relationship. If you think, well, I don't see God as my Father and that's just too personal and that's just not what I believe. It's not your fault. That's our nature. But it's not God's fault either. The world in sin wants to make it God's fault, but it's not true. We were born into a world That was out of fellowship with God, broken by sin, and God entered into our world to fix that and restore us, restore you. Jesus came into the world as one of us, a child of God, but He was and fully is God. filled with the Spirit of God, God in flesh. He came with two objectives, define God and redefine us. Because God had been lost to religion and we were lost in sin. Jesus came to declare that Father was God's choice name and reclaim you as God's chosen child. He told story after story, preached sermon after sermon, make it impossible to miss. God is our Father. He made it clear by demonstrating the kindness of God in everything that He did and said. He said in Luke chapter 12, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you this life and what lies beyond. He said in John 14, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know who God is, look at me. Don't listen to anybody else's opinion. Look at Jesus. He went to the cross to make it impossible for us to be separated from God, remain in our sin, and blindness to God. He died for our sins because God so loved the world that He gave His Son to die so that we all could live as His children. The death of the perfect Son of God broke the curse that was over all God's imperfect and lost children. And Jesus' death in His perfection broke the curse of our imperfection. I don't know who God has been to you. I don't know how you've related to God in the past. But from this point forward, you can know God as your Father. And you can have the certainty that you are His child. Maybe our time from normal religious routines has been for something good that we might can restart at this place. In recent weeks, we've talked about how ancient Israel often wandered from God, but God always found them and regathered them. Sometimes He would allow circumstances to climax in such a way that would drive them to a place of prayer and surrender. Maybe that's why we faced what we faced of late. Over and over again, we find stories of Israel feeling desperate. God being there to deliver them when they depended on Him. One of my favorite stories that we'll close with just a brief look at is from when Samuel was leading Israel as they came before him asking for direction. Samuel says, direct your hearts to the Lord and He will deliver you. Direct means put your focus on Him and understand what He wants you to know. Prepare and have a firm understanding. That God is your Father. He created you. He has brought you out of slavery and bondage and He's led you to this place. Rely on Him. Have a relationship with Him more than just religious routines, but a daily walk. Sin and shame tells you to look away from God, but God's love and grace bids us to turn towards Him. Trust in, rely on, and depend on Him. Like a child does their father knowing that He'll always come through. Samuel says, do not cease to cry out to the Lord like a baby cries out for his parent or her parent because their basic instinct knows that only their mom or dad can give them what they need. They may not even know what they need, but their nature, their design tells them their parents will. Hello? You may not know what your heart needs... But your soul knows that only your Father in heaven can provide it. I love how that story ends. Samuel cries out to the Lord and the Lord answered him. And the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But look at this.